Today's podcast is sponsored by Google. Each new day online is a balancing act for parents. You like your child to explore the digital world safely, but also want to protect the precious offline moments you enjoy together. Google's Family Link app helps parents set digital ground rules for their child's Android device. Approve or block app downloads, set limit on screen times, even create a bedtime for your child's phone or tablet. Family Link lets you choose a balance that's right for you and your family. To find out more and see how Google can help, search Google Family Link. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm delighted to be joined by our Washington editor, Amber Athey, and the managing editor of Spectator World, Matt McDonald, who are both in the Washington area. And it's been a pretty significant week in American politics. We had the Virginia race on Tuesday, which was won by a Republican, and various other races that suggest, or that most people are saying, that suggest that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is alienating voters. Is that a fair analysis? Amber, I'll start with you. Yeah, definitely. So beyond just the Virginia race, which really was focused by the Republican candidate, Glenn Youngkin, on local issues and then nationalized by Democrat Terry McAuliffe, there were several other indications that progressivism lost on Tuesday. There was a vote in Minneapolis on the defund the police movement, and voters overwhelmingly supported keeping police in place. And in Seattle, there was a race for city attorney where a former Democrat actually changed her party affiliation to Republican to counter one of her Democratic colleagues who similarly was in support of the defund the police movement. And a Republican ended up winning city attorney in Seattle, which is pretty unheard of. For people who don't remember, Seattle was where they had the autonomous zone known as CHOP slash CHAZ, where people had basically created a community within a community and kept out first responders and police officers. And it was uh, organized by members of Antifa and Black Lives Matter and other left-wing progressive movements. So it wasn't just the Virginia race. There were there were several other things across the country that really indicated that people are, are sick of the left-wing woke nonsense. And what's crazy about the result of that is that many Democrats are saying, well, actually, the lesson to be learned here is that our party hasn't gone far enough. It's because we didn't pass the 3.5 trillion version of Build Back Better. It's because we didn't pass the infrastructure package. So they've really missed the memo here. Well, they have missed the memo to a certain extent, Matt. I mean, it is true that the young were seem to be not mobilised in these elections. They tend to be less mobilised in state-level elections anyway. But the demographics which the radical left would normally appeal to just seem to not be turning up. So Perhaps there is something in the suggestion that they're not even appealing to the people that they can appeal to. Yeah, I think it's important not to take for granted that Terry McAuliffe ran a terrible campaign. You have a state, you know, the Commonwealth of Virginia voted for Biden by 10 points in the 2020 election. And then Youngkin has won by two points. And there's a lot of things you can tell from that in terms of how you can motivate the base of a party. I was at a Terry McAuliffe rally last week in Amber's neighborhood in Arlington, where Biden was speaking with McAuliffe. And there were progressive activists there, but they were protesting against Biden on behalf of, I think, the DACA dreamers and on behalf of 
they were climate activists uh, protesting in favour of the environment and passing legislation to, to assist with all that. Now, if that wing of the party is protesting against you when you're trying to build as broad a church as possible, you've got to think, well, what are we offering to voters which matters to them? And what Terry McAuliffe offered to voters in Virginia was sneering about their concerns in the classroom. You know, Virginia parents have basically been, mostly been educating their kids from home for the best part of 15 months. Then they come back into the classroom and are concerned about, you know, if you're a white parent, whether your children are being told that they have the original sin of whiteness. Yet, if they're thinking, well, it's a shame that the Democratic Party are, are refusing to engage with that issue and instead want to write off anyone concerned about that as a white supremacist. And Glenn Youngkin was very able to tap into that as a local issue. Whereas Terry McAuliffe ran a scare campaign basically saying, you should be terrified of Youngkin. He's basically a Trump avatar. He's Trump light. Joe Biden referred to him as extremism can come in a fleece vest, which is a ridiculous assertion when you actually look at what Youngkin was saying and how it run. Typically you get, you know, Republicans are very keen in an election to scare voters about socialism and Democrats are very keen to scare voters about creeping white supremacy and social issues. That wasn't Glenn Youngkin's campaign. Glenn Youngkin barely talked about abortion. He barely talked about many of the typical grassroots Republican issues you'd expect. He ran a local campaign. It worked out for him. Whereas Terry McAuliffe basically tried to... Terry McAuliffe, I think, thought he was running as Joe Biden in 2020 against Trump. Terry McAuliffe's campaign ended up being more like Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 against Trump. It didn't work. People didn't buy it. Well... Amber, Roger Kimball has a typically forthright piece on Spectator World at the moment saying that actually Trump was a big factor in this election and there's, there's a sort of eagerness among a lot of establishment Republicans, if you like, to make the case that Glenn Youngkin successfully disassociated himself from Trump. Whereas, in fact, what could be the case is that voters thought he was being lumped with Trump and quite a few voters liked that. And if you look at who turned out in Virginia, it seems to be rural voters, which is where we know Trump is, is strong. Yeah, I actually think that Youngkin really struck the perfect balance between being Trumpy but not too Trumpy. And what I mean by that is he adopted Trumpian policies in terms of wanting to use the power of government to ban critical race theory, wanting to investigate the Loudoun County School Board for allegedly covering up a sexual assault. He leaned into local issues, but he did it in a way that he didn't take the traditional conservative line of limited government. He actually wants to go into office and use his powers to try to help the parents who are concerned about these issues. And then kind of economically conservative in the sense that he wants to cut the gas tax and lower taxes for businesses, etc. But he paired those issues with a more moderate temperament. So he didn't have a lot of the baggage in terms of personality that Trump had. So it really was the balance of those two things that I think appealed to a lot of voters in the Northern Virginia area who probably agree with Republicans a lot on policy, but just couldn't stomach the idea of voting for Trump specifically. And that's why you saw a huge swing in Loudoun County, for example, where Biden won that county by 25 points and McAuliffe only won it by about 10 and a half. But then in the southwest part of the state, which has these more rural counties, Glenn Youngkin actually outperformed Trump. He won those counties by 80 to 85 percent, where Trump won by maybe 70 to 75 percent. So he really was able to build a coalition by having the sort of populist nationalist policies 
with a temperament that is more like Mitt Romney, and that proved to be a really winning combination for him. So I think Roger Kimball is right in a sense that Trump really created the issue areas and focused on those issue areas in his 2016 campaign, and then again throughout his administration and in 2020 that were relatively new for Republicans. But Trump was not a factor in the sense that his personality and his presence didn't drag down the potential of bringing in some of these moderate Democrats or even establishment Republicans who really hated Trump. Well, if Trump was a factor in this race, so too was Joe Biden, Matt, in that the president got involved and seemed to not just not help, but actively harm his candidate, if his impact on the race is anything to be judged by, is Biden as big a problem at the ballot as a lot of people are saying this week? So to kind of compound that with with Amber's point, I think that when it comes to when you're thinking of Trump's influence on the race, are you thinking of Trump the man or are you thinking of the Trumpist agenda in 2016, which the Republicans then recycled around again in 2020 and didn't add that much to? The reason I think why the Trump 2016 agenda worked is because it was issue focused and issue driven. And that is the learning which I think Glenn Youngkin took from this election. Whereas the Democrats, the policies that they were arguing, they didn't really make that as the argument. Instead, the argument they were making was you should be scared of Donald Trump. Locally in Northern Virginia, they were running ads saying Donald Trump is is coming to Virginia to campaign for Glenn Youngkin. He wasn't. Trump had offered to do a tele rally for Yunkin, which Yunkin didn't respond to. And he'd hinted that he might come to Arlington as well, but he didn't do it. So if you're just going to try and scaremonger rather than talk about the things that voters care about, you're going to get hung out to dry. In Northern Virginia in particular, and also, I mean, elsewhere in the state in Virginia, the 2020 going for Biden 10 points was just Biden is the button you press to get rid of Donald Trump. But those people, a lot of the people who press that button are not Democratic voters. And that is one of clear point that comes out of this result. Biden, I didn't think was particularly helpful or issue driven when he spoke on the one occasion when he did campaign for McAuliffe. But he wasn't the only Democratic big gun who was brought out to campaign for him. Kamala Harris campaigned for McAuliffe in Norfolk in the week leading up to the election. Barack Obama campaigned for McAuliffe in Richmond. And... In every case, there wasn't a concrete policy argument, which I think really resonated with people in the way that Youngkin's campaign managed to managed to cut through. I would also point out that I don't think that Biden on a personal level was a detriment to McAuliffe. But again, it was about the issues and also more generally just about the unpopularity of the Biden administration, because one of the biggest issues in Virginia outside of education was the economy. And so people were really concerned about inflation. They're concerned about their grocery prices, their gas prices, as well as the supply shortages. And they can easily blame that on the Biden administration. And they see, I think people, voters are able to tie the fact that the Biden administration wants to push through a massive spending bill with the rise in inflation. And so Voters who said the economy was a top issue for them were far more likely to vote for Glenn Youngkin than they were for Terry McAuliffe. And so I think it's easy to look at this race and say that it was all about the parent movement, and that is a huge part of it. But the economy was a big issue and jobs were a big issue as well as voters are looking to recover from the pandemic and go back to work. And Matt, you mentioned earlier the abortion issue, and I just want to touch on that really briefly because the Democrats not only shot themselves in the foot by focusing on social issues because they weren't focused on the issues that actually matter to voters, 
but also people who voted on the issue of abortion broke for Youngkin. So it was 8% of voters who said abortion was their top issue, and I believe about 60% of those voted for Youngkin. And it makes sense when you think about it, people who are very pro-life and really care about protecting the sanctity of life are probably more likely to go out and vote for the Republican than they are the Democrats. So that was another way in which that focus backfired. I'd also point out in terms of giving this a bit of statewide perspective, one of the first schools at which the Let's Go Brandon, at which the, uh, well, not the Let's Go Brandon, but the F Joe Biden chant first took off was at Virginia Tech, which is down in Blacksburg in Southwest Virginia. Now, Hang on, Matt, for our British listeners, you're going to have to explain this and apologise in advance for swearing. Tell us about the Let's Go Brandon phenomenon. So in sports games, the start of the new sports season here in the US, at college football games and at baseball games, the Subway Series, the Yankees versus Mets in New York, sports fans started chanting, and I quote, fuck Joe Biden. And one of the first, the most viral instances of this taking place and spreading across colleges was at Virginia Tech, which is, you know, a public university in Virginia, one of the biggest that there is. Colleges are traditionally liberal. It's a, it's a liberal college in a conservative area. So the fact that you have people seizing upon that, mostly because it's funny, not because it necessarily uh, tells you anything about policy, but does give you a slight insight into how jaded traditional democratic voters, which college students would be, are into this administration and how languid it seems in, in the way that it acts and reacts to problems. I mean, you made a very good point about the economy. I saw one poll that said that Republicans are 18 points more trusted than Democrats on handling the economy, which is the highest it's ever been since that survey has been taken. I'll ask both of you, as, as people living in America, is inflation feeling like a real, real issue? It's hard for us to feel it here so close to, to Congress because obviously this is one of the, the biggest cities in the country and things usually take longer to hit here than they do the rest of the country. But when you look at some of the smaller towns and suburbs surrounding the area, there are cases where grocery stores are completely out of stock of, of major goods Prices are increasing. Gas is outrageous right now. Just about a year and a half ago under the Trump administration, I was paying like $2 a gallon for gas, and now I'm paying three sixty to go to the station down the street. So it's pretty significant. And even in my local Harris Teeter, I mean, I live in I would, what I would consider a, a pretty bougie area. Yeah, you're very there bougie, have, Emma. <laughs> yes, <laughs> very high class, broad. But uh, <laughs> I mean, even at my Harris Teeter, they are missing... It just really basic stuff like you can't buy goldfish or if you're looking for like a specific brand of peanut butter they don't have the peanut butter on the shelf and if you extrapolate that to areas that are going to have even bigger effects from you know supply chain issues then i think that's a real game changer for people and especially if you have a family and you're buying a lot of groceries for your family every week you're going to see that in your pocketbook so for lower middle class individuals for working class individuals it is a serious problem, and I, and I think it is one of those things that really cuts across partisan lines. And if you're maybe a moderate Democrat or like a union Democrat who was really the coalition that Biden tried to grab, anything that affects your ability to buy things for your family is, is going to, to really affect the way that you vote. I agree. Last week I was in Richmond, Virginia, 
in the suburbs, one of these areas, which was supposed to be like a big swing area and focus. And when Abba says gas, she means petrol. I just want to clarify that. But yeah. the, price of a, the price of a tank of, of gas compared to how it was even, you know, two years ago was absolutely obscene. Amber is completely right in saying that inflation has become, is a kitchen table issue and it's those families who notice it. However, the Biden administration, his chief of staff, Ron Klain, was retweeting an article a couple of weeks ago in which inflation is referred to as a high class problem. His press secretary, Jen Psaki, is talking about the supply chain issues, which is, you know, in some ways also tied to inflation as a problem, as the, the treadmill that didn't arrive on time. So if the Democrats were worried about seeming out of touch with your typical American voter, they have a very strange way of expressing it. And that could really come back to haunt them in the, in the midterms this time next year. Well, the midterms are looking very bad. But let me put the kind of contrarian point to you that if you look at Obama's presidency at about this stage, his popularity was collapsing. He famously had, had the shellacking in the midterms against the Tea Party in 2010. And then, of course, he was re-elected as president and generally left with pretty solid approval ratings. Well, I mean, that's a fair point. And I think there tends to be a trend in that way, such that voters will express their opposition to a presidency in the midterms. And then that kind of satisfies them because they get the opposing party in power. And then you have gridlock for two years. And so the president starts to become popular again because the voters blame Congress for not getting anything done. So it's kind of this weird, just part of the American system that the anger at a president doesn't always get reflected exactly on them. I think that's true to a point. I think that the midterms will be a shellacking for Biden. And then, I, I mean, it's really a question for 2024 as to who the ghost of Joe Biden ends up running against. The thing you can take from this week is the Glenn Youngkin and the Youngkin campaign have shown you the way to do it, which is run on issues. And so whether that candidate ends up being Ron DeSantis, Christy Noe, Marco Rubio, Nikki Haley, they have a blueprint to copy in terms of the way, the way to beat this administration. Or indeed Donald Trump. Or Donald Trump. I mean, I think, and I would like to point out just for the establishment Republicans, you know, back to Roger Kimball's point, kind of saying that this is proof that you don't really need Trump. I would also caution the Republican Party from taking too much from that and thinking that that means you have to be sort of a stick in the mud, boring, flaccid type candidate, because even though Youngkin was really moderate in temperament, he was still, he had that fighter aspect about him that Donald Trump had. He was willing to push back and even ignore the attacks from Democrats who called him a white supremacist, who called him a racist. There was no capitulation to the left in his campaign. It was only that he just wasn't as vulgar as Trump. So when you look at someone like a Nikki Haley or Christy Noem, who has kind of made their career on giving in to people who express opposition to them, that was definitely not the message that they should take from Virginia. I think we'll end it there. Amber and Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.